All right, well, I w it was brought to my attention the other day that we have been in the 1689 now for about 20 months, and so I have not even finished the second chapter yet. And I do want to say this, that that is not the pace that I intend to walk through uh, the entirety of the confession. We, we won't ever make it through it. But most especially this most recent chapter, although there's three paragraphs, we're walking through the doctrine of God and we're dealing with his attributes, his being, his nature, and here we're dealing with the Trinity. So we spent some time dealing with um, the fact that uh, the Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit is a person, that Jesus is God, Jesus is a person. We did not spend any time at all uh, arguing or teaching that the Father is God and is a person, because that is not controversial. There's nobody that's questioning that the Father is, is God. The controversy surrounds, and especially historically, it is surrounded um, whether or not the Holy Spirit is God and a person, whether or not the Son is God and is a person. And we spent one lesson talking about the Holy Spirit, and we spent four lessons talking about the Son. And my desire was that you would recognize the overwhelming amount of evidence there is that Jesus is, in fact, God. So we're going to deal with uh, these three areas. We're going to close off our Trinitarian theology in talking about generation, procession, procession, and subordination. And we're going to be dealing with some, some terms and concepts in this lesson, as we have in other lessons, that, that maybe they might be things that you're not familiar with, you're, you're not immediately comfortable with. And, you know, sometimes we go into church and we just want things to be nice and simple and easy. And sometimes they can be nice and simple and easy. When you're talking about Trinitarian theology and the doctrine of God, we use certain words for certain reasons. And these words have been worked out many, many centuries ago. And we use those words because we're communicating certain things about God. And there's a tension that exists here in Trinitarian theology that there are certain things that we know to be true. And then there's other details that are revealed. So, for instance, we know that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, all right? And so, if they are God, they, they, there can't be different levels of God. They have to be completely God. If, if the Father is 100% God, and then the Son is 90% God, and then the Spirit is 70% God, well, you would end up with the Son not being God. You would end up with the Holy Spirit not being God. If you're almost God, you're not God. Um, you have other issues that we walk, walk into um, as we talk through some of these details, because certain aspects about being God is that God is unchanging. He is immutable. So we're taking all that we've studied so far in our understanding of who God is and what the scriptures have said, and the confession is intentionally laid out this way. So you're taking about all that has been laid out about the attributes of God and who God is. So we're going to remember that God is Immutable, God doesn't change. God is simple, all right? Sometimes you say God is simple. People say, like, that doesn't sound very nice. This is not talking about intelligence, okay? We've already declared that God is omniscient, so he's not lacking in intelligence. He's not lacking in wisdom. But God is simple in that he's not made up of parts, like, like I'm composite. There's different parts of me. You know, you, you, different parts are what make me who I am, and so it is with everyone else but not so with God. God is not comprised of parts. God just 
is. And so we're taking those attributes and many others in helping to inform us as we walk through these areas that are declared to be true in the scriptures. And you're going to see certain things about these topics, generation and procession, that teach us certain things about God. They teach us certain things about the Trinity. Because something may happen as we're walking through this. You may say, why does this even matter? Why are we splitting hairs over this? This is not splitting hairs on these topics. When we're talking about generation and procession, and I'm going to unpack those here in just a minute, we are talking about details that differentiate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're things that are particular to them in their very existence. The word we use there is called subsistence. And they use that word for a particular reason because you don't want to say nature, because you don't want to say that they, the Father has a different nature than the Son. You run into these difficulties. So the way in which the Father exists, the Son exists, and the Holy Spirit exists, they exist in particular ways. And generation and procession help us to understand these details. We're going to also talk about the topic of subordination. And that is our understanding of it's going to go into something called the economic trinity, how God works things out, how, how God acts. And, the, and what you will see is that there is not a, within the very nature of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there aren't different levels of God. But as God acts in creation and providence, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit partake in different roles. They don't all do the same thing. So let's, let's go ahead and begin. This is this last portion of the confession. The third paragraph of chapter 2. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence Yet the essence undivided, the Father is none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. I am leaning on two, uh, actually three different lectures. So one of them is a sermon that you can find on our sermon audio called The Eternal Subordination Controversy by Liam Gallagher, and also two lectures by Arden Hodgins. The Doctrine of the Trinity, number five and number six. And I'm leading quite heavily, honestly, on uh, Arden Hodgins' um, lectures here. And I'm trying to make sure that I'm staying clearly within the lines that we need, we need to stay within. I also utilize some uh, systematic theologies. But we understand this to be true in the scriptures, that God is one. God just is. God is, is simple. He is not composite. He's not made up of different parts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We also understand in the scriptures that God is Trinity. Just one example of that would be Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is very much a Trinitarian passage. You are, someone is being baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And this is not three different levels of God. This isn't a hierarchy within God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And we, we have to hold on to what we understand to be true as we're walking through this topic. And we're, we're understanding this topic that what we know to be true, what we studied already, is going to affect us in this study. So we talk about this topic here of eternal generation. That's, that's dealt with here within this paragraph. The Father is none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And that's, that's what we're talking about right there, is the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And when we're talking about eternal generation, we are talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son and their very, the particularities of who they are and that the Son has always existed, the Father has always existed, and the Son has always been being generated by the Father. And let's walk through this in a few different places. And so we're going to have something here that we're, we're declaring that the Scriptures say that we don't have full understanding of. Because when you think about someone being begotten, someone begetting someone else, when, when, you, when you talk about, you know, generation, all right, someone, someone coming into existence, right, you're talking about someone who was not in existence and then came into existence. You have a child who was born. You read through the King James, and this name beget this, and this person beget this person, this person beget this person. And that's how you generally understand that term. That cannot be what the writers are talking about. Because Jesus is declared to be God. We'll review some of those later on. All right. But Jesus is declared to be God in numerous places in Scripture. God does not have a beginning. God can't add to himself. God can't become what he wasn't before. God just is. God is perfect. There's no adding to God. If you can add to God, you're either diminishing what he was or adding to what he was. If you're adding to what he was, then he wasn't God previously. He can't increase. He's perfect. Furthermore, if you're diminishing who he is, he's going from a state of being God to not being God. So when we understand generation, this cannot be the son coming into existence. That's why we are calling it eternal generation. Now, the other thing that people will want to do is they want to try to clean this up and make this work itself out. And they, they will say, well, look, he became the son whenever um, he came down and dwelt among us. Right? So whenever he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he became the son then. We've got numerous places where we're going to see where that absolutely does not work. You can walk through Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he talks about his relationship with the Father. And we see numerous passages that talk about the son being in existence prior to the incarnation. This is an eternal generation. And you're going to say, well, I don't understand that. I'm going to say, I don't understand that either. I don't understand that. I don't have the ability to comprehend that. But this is the nature of Trinitarian theology. There are things that you 
Belief because the scriptures say they are true, they are necessary to be true, based on things we've already said, but you don't fully understand them. You don't have the full picture. You have what has been revealed, and the Lord has sought it necessary to reveal these things to us. You're going to find a lot of these things are revealed in the Gospel of John. Overwhelmingly, you find these things revealed in the Gospel of John. Let's look at some passages where we see eternal generation and talk through them. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. All right. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is talking about the second person of the Trinity. It's talking about Jesus. This is talking about the Son. So he was in existence prior to his incarnation, which is in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus was in existence. We all know that. John also says he brought all things into existence that have come into existence. He didn't, he didn't bring himself into existence. That's verse 3 there. He brought all things into existence. He didn't bring himself into existence. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we have this idea of God giving his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He gave his son all right, he can't give his son if his son is not his son prior to the incarnation. It's not like there's an incarnation. Now I say, okay, you're my son now, and now I'm going to, now I'm going to give you. No, he gave his son. John 5, 26, for the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. Again, seeing this this relationship between the Father and the Son, this idea of eternal generation happening there. Uh, John 14, 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Again, that relationship between the Father and the Son. John 17, 21, I do not say for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you the Father are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, this is his high priestly prayer. This is in John 17. This is hearkening back to things in eternity past prior to the incarnation in the Father sending the Son. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe... By the word of his power, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so this is the doctrine of eternal generation. This is, this is the, the idea, the understanding that, that Jesus has always been in existence. And the relationship between the Father and the Son within the word we would use, it's called subsistence, is that of eternal generation. He has always been being generated by the Father. Again, I said, well, what exactly does this mean? I'm going to tell you, I don't know exactly what that means. And I think we need to be cautious and not try to connect all the dots and make things to make sense for us here in this life where we are now. It's important for us that when we understand what the Bible has already said about who God is, and we understand his, his attributes and his nature, 
that when certain things are revealed about God and the Trinity, that we need to hold on to all of those attributes that have already been being communicated. Because what the, the ways in which people have walked into heresy is they have tried to connect the dots in these areas and they've neglected these other attributes of God that we've already studied that we know to be true. And so you've got to hold on to both of these things at the same time, even though I may not fully understand all of these details. And that puts you in the line of a great many Christians. None of us fully understand these details, but these are things that were contained within the Nicene Creed in the fourth century, very early on um, in church history. Actually, we can find these things before that, but we'll say Nicene Creed for right now. You see them very much codified there. Eternal procession, let's talk about that. We see that. We see that here within the Nicene Creed, uh, where it says, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who, sp- who spoke by the prophets. Um, And so we have this, this, this communicated to us in the confession that the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And I think I, I copied the wrong portion of the Nicene Creed there because in the Nicene Creed you have the, in the, in the version that was updated. And so there was, there was a council, the third council of Toledo, and it was added that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And it was, it was of a controversy to the Eastern Church because there's certain things in the Eastern Church that the way they were believing and practicing were contrary to that. And secondly, they didn't feel like they were a part of this. And there's even a possibility that there were some tran- issues with how things were translated and an understanding of how things were translated from Latin and, and into Greek. But what we do need to understand is that the framers of our confession held to what the Western Church said, and that is that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit has always proceeded from the Father and the Son. We call this eternal procession. Now, this is going to be another one that I say, well, what exactly does that mean, eternally proceeded from? I don't exactly know that detail, but I will read over some scriptures that communicate these ideas so that we can understand why it is that we are confessing these things. And I want to give you this reminder again. I began with this. When we're talking about generation and procession, we have details from the scriptures that help us to differentiate between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If we did not have these particular details, though you may feel like they're inadequate for you to have full understanding, we would not be able to differentiate between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the ways that we are. So John 15, 26 and 27, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So John 15, this is a very classic passage on this, where you can see that the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and also Jesus is sending the Spirit 
So the Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Father and from the Son. Now, the Eastern Church would look at this, and they would say, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. That's very clearly communicated. But the only reason why he is proceeding from the Son is because the Father is allowing that to happen. But he doesn't really proceed through him. The, the, the Father is just sending him through the Son. And what this, what this does, here, here's, here's, here's a difficulty that you run into, and it's has shown itself to be true in the Eastern Orthodox Church, is that when we look at it that way, all right, when you look at it as being the Holy Spirit is proceeding only from the Father, and so you have, have the Son that's generated from the Father, and you have the Spirit that proceeds from the Father. So you have these, these, these two almost actions, action's not the right word, but um, we'll just say the Holy Spirit and the Son coming out from the Father, um, generating and proceeding. And you have this idea that, well, there's two different ways to God. Okay, you come to God through the Word, through this intellectual understanding. You come to God through the Spirit. And so when you think about Eastern Orthodoxy, you kind of see that in their practice. You see these very ethereal ideas, this, this chanting, um, this, this, this repetitive singing. Um, you've got the incense. You've got, the, as they might say, the, the smells, the bells. You've got the icons. You've got all of these other accoutrements of, of the religion that I, I think, and I've heard others argue this reality, that, that that has its basis here in this idea. And in understanding scripturally what we have, that the Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Father and the Son, it, it doesn't give you that, that idea. It, it gives you a, a more um, completeness within, within the Godhead. It also connects all three persons of the Trinity. The, the, the Son is generated from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, so all three persons are united. They're not disjointed. Let's read a couple more passages on procession. Uh, John 20, 22, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, they are withheld. I actually had someone try to do this to me once. This is not something that we're supposed to copy ourselves. This guy was praying for me. He started breathing on me. I said, what are you doing? He's like, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. I'm like, no, no, that's, that's, that's not how that works. That's, that's weird. Um, you're not the son of God. Jesus didn't tell you to go do that. Uh, John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Again, you have Jesus sending the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we're, we're going to have a series of passages I'm going to read here that, that, that talk of the spirit of Christ or, or the spirit of the son. Uh, Romans 8 and verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Philippians 1, 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn away, this will turn out for my deliverance. 
Okay, so, so why do we say uh, eternal procession? I, I think we've already hit on this just a little bit. But this idea of the Holy Spirit uh, proceeding eternally is, is consistent with our understanding of who God is. Again, God is immutable. He doesn't change. So if the Holy Spirit is God, and we already made our arguments previously, so we're bringing all that into this, right? The Bible says the Holy Spirit is God. Okay, so he can't just come into existence at some point in time. He has to have always existed. But there is a relationship between the Spirit and the Son and the Spirit and the Father, which is that of procession, the Spirit going out from the Father and and the Son. And though we may not fully understand this, we must accept the realities that this is communicated in the Scriptures. And we must not make the Spirit out to be one who was brought into existence or one who had a starting point. It's the same problem you run into with generation. If you make generation out to be something that is happening in time, you have a time when Jesus did not exist, or you have a time when Jesus was not God. That, that does not work. That, that, is, that, is, that, is, not, that is not acceptable. Um, this is coming down to the reality that God is Trinity, and these are details about the relationships within the word. Again, we use the subsistence, the existence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the distinctions between them are being communicated to us through procession and generation. That's why these things are important. Now, I could spend a lot of time going into a lot of philosophical terms. There's a lot of philosophical terms that are used to help to put up fences um, around this, but this is just kind of the basics of what I want you to see, that this is important, this is taught in Scripture, and this is something um, that if you deny it, you're denying Scripture, and if you try to connect the dots too much and you try to make it so that it makes perfect sense here within this world as we understand time and space and existence, you're going to walk yourself into heresy. And you must not do that. You must not make Jesus to be one who was brought into existence. You must not make the Holy Spirit to be one who is a mere force or in who is not personal. Again, you can look back at the lectures we did on that because I think we made very strong arguments that the Holy Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit is a person, the Son is God, and the Son is a person. Let's talk about this last detail, um, that of of subordination. Um, And so when we talk about subordination, you can get into heresy land, again, when you start trying to make things make sense for you perfectly in this life, in your understanding of the Trinity. So when we understand subordination, you're understanding the relationship between the Father and the Son. But the key that you must understand of this is this is subordinate in their activity, in the action, in how they are bringing about creation and providence. Okay, so God has a decree God has decreed whatsoever shall come to pass. How does God bring about his decree? Through creation and through providence. And so God works these things out in what we would call an economic fashion. Uh, it's, It's called an economic trinity. And this has to do with the roles that the Father 
and the Son and the Holy Spirit play in unfolding creation and providence. We do not back these things up and change their particular natures. That's where you begin to walk into a problem. When you begin to see that the scriptures say certain things about the Father in his actions, certain things about the Son in his actions, certain things about the Holy Spirit in his actions, when you begin to back those up and, and create a hierarchy in the Godhead, you begin to tread very close to heresy. And this has been something that, that, is, that has been walked through in church history. And these are areas that I know this is the one here. This is probably the one lecture we've done on chapter 2 where it's, this isn't the easiest one to teach. And I'm certain on your perspective, this isn't the easiest one to understand. But we've got to tread lightly in these areas that we don't have full knowledge of and try to make them make perfect sense for us here in this life and how we understand and relate to time and space and existence. Because we're dealing with someone who exists outside of time, outside of space. God is eternal. He's always existed. He's not bound by time. God is omnipresent. What do we mean by that? We mean that God is not bound by space. God made time and space. And so his existence is different than our existence. And so there's certain things that are communicated to us, and we must keep them in their proper place. And so when we're understanding subordination, really I should have put economic, I should have put economic trinity up there, because that's really more what I'm talking about. I'm going to talk about subordination, but we're really talking about the economic trinity. So let me walk through some of these ideas. This is going to make more sense when I begin to walk through it. So this, this economic, the, the economic trinity, how God does what God does. That's probably a simpler way to say it. For instance, some of these are going to make sense to you. The Father elects and predestines. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be wholly blameless before him. This is an action that the Father did. This is not what the Holy Spirit did. This is what the Father did. The, uh, the Father gave us Christ, John six thirty nine. And this is his will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that has been given me, but raise it up on the last day. The Father sent the Son. We see that in John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then in John 8.17 and 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now, there's more that I could say, but this is just the example. These are things the Father does. The Son did not send the Father. This is what you need to see. The Father sent the Son. All right? The Father elected. The Father predestined. The Father sent the Son. The Father gave us Christ. Those are things that economically that the Father did. So just there's many things that I could list here for this example, but talking about the Son, Jesus performed the redemptive work. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
Okay, so Jesus is the one that performed the redemptive work. Jesus is the one that came down and dwelt among us. Okay, the Father did not. The Father did not perform the, re- the redemptive work. The Father did not die on the cross. The Holy Spirit did not die on the cross. Okay, you begin to get into other heresies like uh, patropassianism. That's the idea that the Father was suffering there upon the cross. You've got a big problem with that. You begin to say the Father is suffering there upon the cross. Okay, now you're dealing with the impassibility of God. You have the Father who was not incarnate. Okay, the Father did not take upon himself flesh. And so you have now one who is God being affected by the creation, one who is changing. Friends, you don't want a God who changes. God's relation to the world and all things in it is different than ours. Uh, let me see. So Jesus performed uh, work of the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit. I already gave verses on that, so I'm not going to read those again. But we understand that the Father and the Son both, both sent the Spirit. Those are things that they did or they do. The Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ. There's many passages we could read on this. First uh, Corinthians 12, 7 and 8, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given through the Spirit. Galatians 5, through 26, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so these, these are just... These are just realities that, that are there. So that's the economic trinity. And we understand these to be talking about what they do, their actions, how creation and providence are unfolded, how the Lord is bringing his decree into existence. We are not to go back and look at this and create a hierarchy whereby you have the Father giving the Son his deity and the Son giving the Spirit his deity. That can't be what it is. God is the word we would use there. There's another word that we've talked about, but it's, you know, um, God has a seity, all right? So God, like the Greeks would have, caused, would have called it, you know, God is the uncaused cause. What's the cause of God? Well, there is no cause of God. God just is. God God just exists. And so you can't have one who is God being caused by another. You can't have one who, who is God whose existence is on the basis of another. God just is. God just exists. And as soon as you begin to do that, you begin to create a situation where these many passages that I could read here, that I'm not going to, that talk about Jesus being God, they suddenly don't have any relevance to us anymore. And I'm not going to read them because we spent so much time previously um, um, and talking, talking about these. But Jesus in his subordination to the Father is not one that's subordinate in his deity. He's rather subordinate there in his action. Why am I spending time on this particular detail? Okay, there is a group that exists now that has gone and they have 
they have gone and they have tried to play around with, this is called theology proper, our understanding of the Trinity. And they've gone and taken these things that are declared in Scripture, that economically the Son is subordinate to the Father in how he acts. And they have gone and they have tried to read this in a way and they have said that Jesus has been subordinate to the Father for all eternity. So this is called subordinationism. Some would call it eternal functional subordinationism. They would say that Jesus has been subordinate to God, um, to the Father, for all eternity. And they have a reason for doing this. This is the council of biblical manhood and womanhood. And there's things that they have said that are very decent and very legitimate, but there's some people in particular that are serving on that board, such as Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem, which hold to this idea of eternal functional subordinationism. And we dealt with this particularly a few years ago in 2018 in our Semper Reformanda conference. And Liam Gallagher, I already mentioned, preached a great sermon on that topic. And Sam Renahan dealt with the, the topic as well from, from the positive side. But as much as we might like to create something, so this is what they've done. They've said, look, the Father, the Son has submitted to the Father for all eternity. And this is demonstrating the relationship between a husband and a wife. So Father's God, the Son is God, and so they, they, have, they, they, have, they have equal significance. And so the husband and the wife both have equal significance, but the wife submits to the husband. And they even go on to say even, even, even odder things. They will say, well, the, the, the love between the husband and the wife then produces children. And they, some of them have said this. It's really bizarre. The love between the father and the son has produced the Holy Spirit. I'm not making this up. Some of you are surprised. I'm not making this up. I chose not to bring all the quotes in here. And I'm at 1028 right now. And I'm glad I didn't. But... That is true. That is what the things that they have said. And, and, and here, here, here's, my, here's, my, here's my issue with this, is that we don't need to play around with the doctrine of God. We don't need to get into subordinationism to understand how it is that households are to relate one to another. We already have instruction on that in numerous places in Scripture. But we can look to Ephesians 5 and 22 through 24, and we can see the instruction that is given there. Wives, submit to your own husbands as in the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as Christ submits to, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then we can go on and we can read the portion on the instruction to to husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, 
and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so we have very clear instruction as to how households are to interact one with another. Hey, guess what? Paul even gave us a great illustration. And that illustration that he gave was not the relationship between the father and the son. The relationship that Paul gave was between Christ and his church. We already have an illustration for this. We do not need to go and start playing around with our understanding of who God is. We don't need to start playing around with our understanding of the relationship between the Father and the Son, because not only I already mentioned that it just gets really weird and bizarre, borderline pagan almost, and how this is being applied and understood, it's not taught in the scriptures, and we already have instruction from Paul in this passage. We could find others, but we have instruction from Paul in this passage, and we already have a just fine illustration. So if you need to preach on this, you have an illustration that Paul has already given you that you can use. We must not be going back and trying to play around with the doctrine of God. We've got to keep these things as being off limits. Furthermore, we don't have to go into eternity past to have an understanding of how children are to relate to parents. We have that in Ephesians 6. We don't have to go into eternity past to, you know, give us instruction on how slave and master or employer-employee are supposed to interact one with another. We have that there in Ephesians 6. It's just not necessary. So we need not, after 2,000 years of church history, go and try to make something new so that we can tell households how to interact one with another. We don't need to make a new illustration. We absolutely cannot be creative with the doctrine of God. God's not asking us to be creative with theology. He's most especially not asking us to be, to be creative with, with theology. Okay, so finishing this off, regarding the, his submission to the Father, um, and, and, you know, the, Christ in his will, submitting his will, submitting rather, the word I'd use there is submitting to the will of the Father. And I asked this question a while back. I mean, how many wills does Jesus have? Someone answer me. Does anyone remember? No one wants to play, who wants to be a heretic, huh? Y'all don't like when I play that game? Who wants to be a heretic? Um, The answer is two. Okay, thank you. Two. Jesus has two wills. And you say, now, what do you mean Jesus has two wills? Well, Jesus is fully God and fully man, so he has a divine will and he has a, a human will. There is no need for Jesus in eternity past to submit to the Father. There is no point, there's never one time ever at any point in existence where there was not complete and perfect unity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There just wasn't. There's no division in the Godhead. There's no, it's not like, oh, I don't really feel like doing that, but okay, I'll do that. Like, it's, it's not like that. So where do we have this idea of, you know, Jesus submitting to the Father? Um, because he did submit to the Father. Um, but let's look at Luke 22, beginning in verse 40. Um, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. So Jesus is there. Jesus is there 
about to go to the cross, and he sees the reality of what is before him. He sees what is going to happen. He is going to be beaten. He is going to suffer. Furthermore, the wrath of God is going to fall upon him. That's not enjoyable. He's not desiring that. Okay, but he's submitting his will to the Father. He's submitting his will to that of God. John 6, 38, I have not come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but of him who sent me. So you must understand the will of Jesus at this time, that in his humanity he is submitting to the divine will. And that's, that's how we need to understand this. And we need to not go and take that and, and, and back that up into eternity and say Jesus has been submitting for all eternity past. And so this is why wives need to submit to their husbands. That is just not necessary. And it's also really bizarre that you look at the doctrine of God and the Godhead and you just walk away with some kind of an authoritarian structure as though that's the lens through which we need to see all of our existence. It's not. That's not what's being communicated through the Godhead. Um, And so that's disturbing in and of itself. It's unhealthy in and of itself. We need to stay away from these things. We need to stay away from people that are teaching these things. I've named a few names already. Bruce Ware teaches this. Wayne Grudem teaches this. Owen Strand is just the worst. I'm sorry. He has been just the absolute worst with this. And you, you begin to also get into this view of masculinity as they unpack this stuff on social media in such beautiful ways, which is basically we just, you know, the problem with the church is the men just need to be the men. And they well, the men do need to step up. The men do need to be men. We have men that are not being masculine, that are not, not acting as Christ would have them act. But you have this definition of masculinity that's like eating meat and punching things and shooting stuff, and that is not biblical masculinity. It, it is great to work on sparring if you like boxing. It is great to shoot guns. I like steak. Okay, but that's not the definition of of biblical masculinity and that's not what we need to be walking off with and that's not the solution for the church the church's problems aren't all solved just by getting men to do things yes men need to do things and i know some people are like well why would you say that no men do need to do things but it's not what it's all about like women need to do things children need to do things i mean people in all different stations of life need to do what they are supposed to do our problem is we don't That's why we need Christ. That's why we have Christ. I could talk much more about this. I obviously have somewhat of an ax to grind in this area. I find this to be very dangerous. I find this to be something that is is not helpful, um, that is dangerous in a lot of ways in how it's viewing um, people in their relationships, but most especially it's very dangerous in how we're viewing God. We must not be creative with God.